Welcome to the Full 60 featuring Craig Custance and presented by The Athletic. Each week, we'll dive into the biggest stories in hockey while bringing in unique voices to entertain and explain all aspects of the game. Hey, this is Craig and welcome to this week's episode of the Full 60. And this week's episode is a continuation of our very popular, I would say, prospect series. In this week, in this month, we're featuring Scott Wheeler, who does uh, fantastic work as our national prospect writer at The Athletic. Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? It's been a crazy few months, but I'm I'm glad we're still doing this. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we are too. And I, I'm glad that the NHL has given us uh, a little bit to talk about and write about. Uh, uh, I say a little bit, a lot. Um, it, during kind of what's been a, a quiet period of real life kind of hockey talk in the draft lottery. And so when this, we're just full transparency for the listener. We're recording this early in the week. So, so we're still kind of smarting from the lottery, at least I am, and it, what happened and can't believe what happened. I don't think I realized, Scott, and, and I saw these tweets coming. I think Arpin was the first to, to mention it. I saw in my timeline. I don't think I realized how likely this was the, the odds of this happening uh, a team placeholder winning actually was like i'm not sure i realized that going into this thing did you did you were you sitting there going hey this this actually probably could happen yeah i think i had a sense for that it could but uh, i'd still kind of prepared myself for it to just be ottawa and detroit and one of the california teams and for everybody to be able to move on a little bit and just have a little certainty and it just felt like that was the the natural way that, that this should have gone and of course it never goes the natural way with the nhl <laughs> not so. in 2020 it's <laughs> certainly not with the nhl never yeah. ever, ever yeah so it, i don't know it, i thought it was a ton of fun and social media was electric and there was good tension right down to the end and now we get to do it all over again and it'll be a ton of fun again so it was nice to have the hockey world buzzing a little bit as far as i'm concerned I, so I agree, and here, like, and, and this is hard for me to say because I'm based in Detroit, and so I'm I'm certainly hearing a lot around me of people who are angry, and mm-hmm. you know, this is typical NHL garage league stuff. Um, but but if I step outside that circle and that influence, I sit here and go, hey, now we have another draft lottery to look forward to. Now we've created a, a debate, and maybe this isn't a healthy debate, but should you or should you not win your playoff? play-in round um you know we've got another made for tv event like this i think the buzz is actually i I don't think this is a bad thing for the nhl unless you're making fun of it which a lot of people are so i don't know where are you at on that yeah i I feel like people were going to make fun of it either way if you have the (laughs) the the top teams win it all the time and if you have those sort of bottom three or four teams that end up with the first overall selection every year then suddenly people are complaining about, hey, these teams are intentionally tanking and we shouldn't be rewarding tanking like this. And then when the NHL balances out its odds and kind of flattens the playing field like it has with its current system where you're much more likely to lose the lottery than you are to win it, then people complain about teams that are competitive getting the first overall pick. So it has always just felt like a lose-lose situation for me as far as the NHL goes. And I I don't know. I I think having relatively flat odds is a good thing. We've all spoken and written about the the year in Buffalo of a couple of years ago, more than a couple of years ago now, where they were cheering for Connor mm. McDavid and cheering losses and that kind of a thing. And and this is the best way that they've that they've used to date as far as I'm concerned in terms of 
making sure that that doesn't happen. You're, you're still going to have teams like Detroit and, and other teams that sell at every deadline and, and try to be as bad as they can down the stretch to maximize their odds at getting a top player. But I don't think that's as pronounced as it would be if you've guaranteed the, the sort of better odds, if you will, at, at the first or second or third overall pick. So I'm honestly fine with, with where it's at. And then on the flip side, the, the odds of what actually happened in Edmonton with them winning three times and in New Jersey with them winning it, it is infinitesimal. Like it, it's, it's so minute. And I, I think at the end of the day, those, those results were not likely to be produced. And you can't harp on the league for the results. You have to harp on the league for the process. And mm. I think the process is pretty sound. My prediction is we're going to see a push um, from GMs to change this. Maybe not this year or next year or next year, but I, I, th- I think there are some. Gen- I know this from conversations. There are some general managers who feel like the p- pendulum has swung too far the other direction, away from the bad teams. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I'm trying to to explain this without giving away making it obvious who I'm talking about or which GM it was but I know like I I know people that are like I, they don't want it to be like self-serving when they when when they really push for this so it's like you have to remove yourself from the process but I think I think there's going to be a push to change it and I know and and I mentioned this on Twitter because this became a debate and I think you even got involved because that's what you do on Twitter Scott and that's why we love you is the um notion that teams should not be able to win multiple lotteries in a, in a set period of time. Um, Predators GM David Poyle, I want to say in 2016, brought that proposal to the GMs. I don't think it got a lot of traction because um, it does seem to be reactionary, right? Like you don't want you never as GMs or as a league want to react to news with, with rules in place. In a, and I like your the way you put it. It's You have to look at the process, not the results. Um, but, I, you know, I would be curious – I would be curious, you know, if there's some push of, hey, you know, either changing the system or limiting who wins in some way, based on yeah, the the Poyle sort of Brian Burke mantra. I know Burke when he was with the Leafs was aggressive in pushing the same thing, and now has done the same in in the media landscape here in Toronto. But um, I've never really understood. I mean, I said as much on Twitter, but I've never really understood the idea of if you win it once, you can't win it again because. If the idea is fairness, that creates the opposite effect. It creates complete divides over when you win it and when you get lucky versus what your odds are. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it just has never made a ton of sense for, 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 from my perspective for them to go that way because not all drafts are created equal. Connor McDavid and Nico Hiche are very different players. Austin Matthews and Nail Yakupov are very different players. And to have it come down to, okay, you won it one year, so you can't possibly benefit from this system moving forward just doesn't make sense. It's it's right. always going to be a three- or four-year process for teams that are bad. Teams are rarely bad for one year and then suddenly turn a corner the next season. It always takes three or four years of being in the mix in the draft lottery, and I think you you should have the odds in that in that three or four year window to potentially win it multiple times if that's how the lottery balls go. Like it, it there has to be a sort of level of balance and fairness that's involved for all of the teams, and I think it's a, a almost a disadvantage even if you had been lucky enough to win it once to not have any sort of route for doing it again because it's just the drafts are so different these days, mm. and the level of talent at the top of the drafts in particular has varied quite widely. And even in the last five, six, seven years, as 
we get to a point where virtually all of these kids are unbelievably talented there's still a difference between unbelievably talented and Connor McDavid. So, right, so it's, right. I, I don't know. It, I don't know what the simple solution is. There probably isn't one. It's always going to be an imperfect system. Um, but I don't love the idea of, of taking away a team's odds altogether. Right. Because imagine if you're the Oilers and you're going through a rebuild and you get Nail Yakupov and you're like, okay, congratulations, that's your lottery win for the next 10 years or whatever the arbitrary rule is. And now you don't have a crack at McDavid, which, you know, is is the person you're actually tanking for. Um, It does seem you're right. Like so often we sit here and we, we like bang our heads over a team falling two slots in the lottery and then, you know, they end up getting Cal McCarr or Mm -hmm. or whatever or Pedersen or somebody where. I don't know. We, you know, uh, there's probably too much, you know, hair hand wringing over all this, anyways. And what really did Edmonton gain out of everything that they were given? We we talk a lot in in hockey about how unfair it was that Edmonton won three times, but it's not like they were gifted a Stanley Cup or they were gifted instant contention. They got Connor McDavid, two first overall picks, Leon Draisaitl, all of these pieces, and it still wasn't enough. So right. you still need. To draft well in other places you still need a coaching staff that knows what it's doing you still need to make the right moves at the right times in terms of player acquisition and free agency and all of those things so it's not like even if the worst case scenario is produced which is basically what happened with edmonton in terms of them winning it multiple times that that's some magic eight ball and suddenly hey now everything has changed for you because Edmonton has still struggled and and New Jersey is still going to continue to struggle. And it hasn't been this sort of instant success that it has for say the Pittsburgh Penguins of the day, or even the Toronto Maple Leafs to a certain degree more recently with Austin Matthews. Um, Right. And, and because what people forget, even with Toronto is they had so many pieces in place when Mm -hmm. they, they had Austin, you know, that it pushed all these good young players down instead of, you know, Morgan Riley or Kadri or these guys having to be the top young players, it just pushed them down into different slots, right? And I would argue the same thing with Colorado. Like they, you almost have to have two waves of your rebuild, and you, you know, their first wave it's getting the Landeskogs and some of these players, and then you know you have Rantanens and Makars and McKinnon. Like there's, it's it takes a long time to accumulate the the young talent, and along with you know hitting occasionally at the top of the draft. Yeah, and, and William Nylander and Miko Rantanen weren't the obvious choices there. Mm. It could have gone a different direction for both of them. Certainly in 2015 with Rantanen, you could have produced all sorts of fabulous players. And 2015 is, in my opinion, the, the going to go down in history as one of the greatest drafts in NHL history. Mm. Um, but yeah, with, with Nylander, you, the Leafs aren't the Leafs without William Nylander. And the Colorado Avalanche aren't the Colorado Avalanche without Miko Rantanen. And the, those weren't those sort of first, second, third overall picks. Right, right. Um, all right. So st- sticking with the lottery for for one more minute here. Um, this this was a question that we were just talking about right before we hit record with um, with producer Jeff, and he said he just kind of threw it out there to us. And I like I liked the discussion. Who's gonna win? Who do you think? And you're like gut when you sit there and say, okay, like this would be the most chaotic win of the draft lottery or it would be just it's their time who is going to win in your mind when because you have to factor in who you think is going to lose first of all in the playoffs and then hit the ping pong balls who's your yeah the knee-jerk reaction i think is to say edmonton but edmonton (laughs) i i feel like is going 
to handle Chicago a lot better than people expect that they'll handle Chicago in that ah, playing round. Right. Um, so I'm not sure whether Edmonton's even going to be in the mix. I, I think of the teams that are most likely to lose, of the Arizonas, the Montreal Canadiens, that kind of thing, yeah. Arizona would be the, the most poetic justice for, for in terms of this system failing itself and and sort of stumbling all over itself if Taylor Hall gets to have another first overall pick and Bettman's darlings in Arizona get to have a first overall pick but I think that would be a great outcome all told um in, in terms of of the possible outcomes like I would love to see Arizona win that pick and finally sort of kickstart the franchise in the way that they've been looking to do in recent years and they're another team like where the Leafs were a few years ago where they've got some nice pieces um, and certainly some nice prospects and some nice young talent. And Victor Soderstrom looks really good. And there are, things are starting to come together in Arizona, but they're never going to sort of leap over that hump without a player like right. uh, like an Alexi. So I think that would change everything for them more so than it maybe would for any other team. Obviously, Montreal would be a ton of fun just because he's French-Canadian. And yeah. they also need that kind of player. Um, but I don't know. Montre- I think Montreal and Arizona would be the outcome where... Um, certainly it's the weaker teams of those involved winning it, which is probably a good thing in terms of how the NHL fan base will react. But it would also just in its own right in both markets be a a good outcome and something that I think we can all be excited about and would be more transformative for those organizations than for some others. Uh, It just feels like people will riot if it's Toronto or Pittsburgh. Oh my gosh. If it's Toronto or Pittsburgh or the Rangers even, because I just feel like people would think it's some sort of grand conspiracy um that it would be nuts all right so I, I think you you might have answered another question by picking arizona like who who deserves it like who deserves this break based on what's you know arizona has been so unlucky at the top of the draft um just in terms of odds and, and you know missing out on mcdavid and i feel like anytime they were bad they they also dropped in the lottery so i feel like they're they're owed a little bit um, we were talking earlier about Vancouver. Maybe Vancouver's owed. I think they've <laughs> they've kind of, but you know they're they've maybe they're owed some luck, but they've hit. So I, I don't know. How, you know, owed is one thing. Who needs him the most? Who do you think of these teams needs him the most? Maybe it's Arizona I, too. I, I I think it might be Arizona. I think Columbus certainly needs mm. that kind of a player as well. Columbus is so well built on the back end, and now Merz Lickens looks like he's going to be a potential starter for them in net. And as good as Pierre-Luc Dubois and some of their forwards are, Emil Bemstrom, Alexander Tessier, those kids are all going to be good pieces for them. But again, it's just after losing Panarin, it just feels like they're the team where it could change everything for them, where they could, if they could continue to hang on to Wierenski and, and Seth Jones and build around them and then also have a sort of premier talent locked in for three years on an entry-level deal and then for RFA status long-term, um, it would, it, yeah, Columbus and Arizona were the ones that immediately come to mind. But Vancouver, in terms of the pure fun of it all, would just be amazing because I think, for my money, Vancouver is one of the most entertaining teams in the NHL right now. Two of my favorite players to watch in the league are definitely Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. And adding Alexi to that group with Brock Besser and all those guys, I, I think they would just become a, a sort of instant appointment viewing, if you will, a lot like. Edmonton is and a lot like Pittsburgh was for a lot of years so uh, I think that would just be so much fun to watch those kids come up together and potentially win a Stanley Cup together in Vancouver I'm going to say my my nomination for who needs it the most 
is going to be the Minnesota Wild. And mm-hmm. I say that like pretty much from the outset of their existence. They've been, you know, yeah. they, they haven't picked at the top of the draft typically. They, you know, they've been stuck in the middle, it seems like, for a long time. They've been good, but not good enough. And now they're getting old, and they've got some. They do have some good young players. I think Paul Fenton. You know, there's going to be a couple moves that it's made it look better than people thought when he, you know, during his era there. Um, but now, what they lack is that high end superstar. You know, young young player. They just that person isn't in their organization. And yeah, if you know, if they lose lose to Vancouver, which I think is probably, if I had to pick right now, I'm picking the Canucks to advance. Um, I think that would be, it would be good, and I would love to see the fans in Minnesota like rewarded with that. And you know, Bill Garrett, you have a new coach, or I mean, a new GM, potentially new coach going to next, you know, a new era. It would give them something to be excited about. Like that's such a great fan base. I, I would love that. Yeah, totally. They're they're a good pick, and I, I had quite frankly just glossed them over. Um, <laughs> I forgot about. They're easy to forget yeah, about, it, Scott. It, they are. They are, they are a little <laughs> bit, but. Yeah, you're no, you're totally right. Matthew Boldy's going to be a great player, and yeah. Kirill Kaprizov's going to be a great player, but they aren't enough. Like they aren't right. Right. Alexi Lafreniere is enough. So, uh, yeah that that would be that would be a great fit. Um, who would freak out the? Who would people freak out the most about between the Blackhawks, the Leafs, and the Penguins? I feel like it has to be the Penguins. The Penguins are just in a cup <laughs> window that never ends, and. I mean, we've talked and talked and talked. How many uh, column inches have been spent on the the sort of propping up that Evgeny Malkin and Sidney Crosby have done basically their entire careers for yeah. their wingers, right? Like they've just oh. always had, uh, when Chris Kunitz is the best winger you've had in your career, it's it, it's probably been pretty slim picking. So uh, that that would just be unbelievable. Watching Alexi step right in there next, there next year and be playing in the playoffs in his first season in the NHL. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it would be, I, I think Pittsburgh is, is the most sort of galaxy brain NHL outcome right. in all of this. I just think that having him immediately insert onto the flank with, with one of those two centers would just be a treat to watch and would just continue to help them potentially win Stanley cups. And God knows that they don't need those two guys don't need another Stanley Cup to get into the Hall of Fame or anything, but it would just further help solidify their status as two of the greatest players ever. Right. They they, they don't need it, but it would be fascinating to watch. To me, what's more interesting is that the Penguins. I think if I had to pick which one I'm rooting for, this may be the scenario I'm rooting for. Just for the level of hockey it would produce, and it would be so much fun to watch this kid play with. Malkin and Crosby, you know, and and perhaps extend the Stanley Cup window of players mm-hmm. that I just enjoy watching, right? Like I have so much respect for Malkin and Crosby that, you know, to get maybe more quality years out of them or more high-end competition, I think would be, I, I think would be just as a hockey fan would be fun. But what it also does is what you have with this franchise, and I think you have a little bit with Washington, um, certainly San Jose, we're, we're seeing it early, is these teams of this era um, this kind of looming rebuild that's that's mm-hmm. gonna ha- that's inevitable, right? It, it's you know we saw it with Chicago, we saw it with Detroit. You don't know when it's gonna hit Crosby and Malkin and the Penguins, and it's probably a couple years away. But if like here is a path out of that that didn't exist two weeks ago, right? Like yep. here is a get out of a rebuild free card potentially if they lose in the first round and win the lottery, because now you've got you've got your next franchise player 
You, you know, the hardest thing to do is get those number one overall picks. Uh, you, you've got that done. You've, you, you, you know, Jim Rutherford still, they have, you know, their goalies are both in their mid twenties, good young goalies. Um, one of the moves that's probably gone down is one of the most underrated moves of the last year or whenever it happened was them adding John Marino on defense. Yep. Good young 23 year old, year old defenseman. Like you, you would be completely skipping over a rebuild scenario potentially. Yeah, and, and their prospect pool is a little bit thin, but suddenly Alexi changes that in a big way. Like they, as, especially after moving Kale and Addison to Minnesota at the deadline, mm-hmm. it's basically just Samuel Poulain, who's a f- fabulous young prospect, and nobody else in their pool in terms of what's coming next. But again, the Penguins, <laughs> the Penguins have a way of making sure that all of those nobodies who are never coming end up being somebody's and end up right. coming. So um, you can never really count out that that group in Wilkes-Barre from turning nobodies into somebody's and all of that. So, uh, yeah. And, and Marino is a great example of someone who just kind of came out of nowhere. He was a good player and a good prospect, but was never expected to be the kind of impact player he was last year. And if last year was just the start, then, then God knows where he'll be two, three, four years from now, as he builds more minutes and confidence and experience into his game and all of that. So, uh, yeah, they just they just seem to have a way, and, and Boston's the same way. Boston, other than Jack Studnika, like they have nobody, and they just that that aging core never seems to get old. Um, yeah. So yeah, Alexi in Pittsburgh would just be would be unbelievable. <laughs> all right, I think that's if I that's my conclusion is I think that's what I want to happen. Um, all right, let's 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 move on because there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Um, most so this this week you've you've launched your project where you looked at each team's best and worst draft of the last 20 years. And as, as we're speaking, the best was published today. Worst will be out later on by the time this is released, will be out for people to read at the athletic. Um, I love exercises like this because it's, I mean, it's a, it's a chance to look back, but it's also a chance to look where, you know, why things worked, examine process. Um, and like in doing it, you know, there's an education that goes with it. Like, this is a lot of work that goes into a package like this. So starting with the best, each team's best draft of the last 20 years, was there something that maybe you'd forgotten about or didn't realize in, in researching this project that really jumps out to you? I think the big, one of the big, there was a, a lot of takeaways I had. One of them that was that the New Jersey Devils have been a competitive team for the last two decades, by and large, and they have drafted extremely poorly. Um, like they are dead. La- if, if I were to rank the, these teams over the last 20 years after going through this project and reviewing all of the various sort of draft performances from all 31 teams, obviously Vegas is a little new because they've only had three drafts, but New Jersey would be dead last. And, and I don't think it would be particularly close. And I didn't have that perception in the back of my head in terms of New Jersey's ability and their performance at the draft in the last 20 years, just because for much of it, I mean, this is, we're talking about my childhood and my teenage years and, and me in university, and they were always a good team. The Devils have always been a competitive, borderline dominant, occasionally Stanley Cup contending team. They've never really had until these last couple of years a major lull in that kind of a performance. So that was one of the big things that that kind of surprised me. I would have said that they were probably closer to the middle of the pack in terms of their performance at the draft. And they were one of the teams I really struggled to to sort of find a best draft for because frankly, I, I don't think they've had a single strong draft relative to where they've picked in the last 20 years. So 
that that was probably the big one that leapt out at me right off the the sort of bat as I began to do the research for this. Yeah, uh, a few things jumped out to me. One of which was um, you you highlighted the Oilers in their best draft, and if I had to guess going into this, it would have been 2015 because when you get the best player of his generation, it's it's automatic. But what was interesting, and that was your selection, but it wasn't just McDavid. Um, like the the knock on the Oilers during the rebuild, especially early on, was how poorly they did outside of the first round. And that 2015 draft um, could end up being really good for them, or already is. And good for them and the Penguins, I would say, with a caveat. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it was interesting to go back over that draft because I tried not to give teams that drafted first overall or second overall too much credit in this. I think by okay. doing that, it kind of if I had have gone that way, it would have sort of dulled down the analysis because then suddenly every draft pick where there's an Austin Matthews or every draft where there's a Sidney Crosby or an Alex Ovechkin are the best draft because that's how you got your best player. So I, tr- I tried to anchor the analysis in how did they do relative to the picks that they had Okay. So it, it, bonus points if you're a late first round pick like a David Pasternak or a third round pick like a Brad Marchand or obviously all of the various hits that they've had in Tampa Bay over the years in terms of Braden Point and Nikita Kucherov and that kind of a thing. Um, but I still think on its own merits that Edmonton draft is really strong just because they didn't have a single top 100 pick outside of McDavid and they ended up with three players who are just sort of entering the league, but between Caleb Jones, Ethan Bear, and John Marino, you've probably got mm-hmm. three second-pairing defensemen in rounds four, five, six, and I think that says a lot about the job that they did there, and obviously Marino is no longer with the organization, but um, yeah, anytime you can get three players outside of the top 100 in a single draft class, it's a, it's a good day for you. <laughs> right. Um, in another one, like... It- you highlighted the Penguins, and it's it's, it's the same idea, right? Like, okay, we're not going to give them credit for taking Malkin and Crosby at the top of the draft, but you know they're successful, and this 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 goes to the whole point of of how a, a rebuild is successful. You you have to hit later on, and they did a really good job. You didn't even mention this. Like, they this, this is the team that drafted Jake Muzzin, right? They they mm-hmm. seem to find, and I would it seemed especially the case with young defensemen. Um, in this era, they always seem to find these Alex Goligoskis and Chris Letang and, you know, some of these other players not taken at the top of the draft. And so you picked 05, but I imagine that, that you know, that that must have been an interesting analysis. Yeah, they had a number of drafts that I considered, but 05, I think, yeah, you forget about Chris Letang. It's easy to look back at those drafts and say, oh, it was Malkin and, and Crosby that changed everything. But uh, where are Malkin and Crosby without Chris Letang? Do they have the Stanley Cups that they have? Uh, were they as dominant as they would have been in their prime? Like it's it's a, it's a worthwhile question, and I think it's the Chris Letang that often changes things for an organization, or at least helps the first overall picks change things for an organization more so than that one sort of singular moment of okay, now we've got Sidney Crosby and all of our problems are solved. You you still have to find depth elsewhere, and when you look back at that draft, I think Chris Letang is is arguably the best defenseman in that draft. I mean. You look at Keith Yandel and Alex Goligoski, and there are some other good players in that that came out of that draft. But um, Chris Letang was probably the best player, the best defenseman in that draft, and certainly the best defenseman in that round. The only other defenseman out of that round that went on to have an NHL career is Cody Franzen. So even if the Penguins are thinking defenseman at that pick at the time, and they go with virtually any other player in that range, it, it's it, their organization doesn't end up where it ends up. So. 
Um, it, those, those specific kinds of picks, those sort of late third, fourth, fifth round picks where you get a true, maybe not a superstar, but darn close. That's, those are the moments that, that differentiate those, those tanking teams from, from each other. The, the bat, the one bad team that goes on to win a Stanley cup versus the other bad team that becomes the Buffalo Sabres and never climbs out. Right. Right. Um, I am tempted to go right into a segue about the Buffalo Sabres, but I'm going to hold off because I want to stay on this topic. Um, one of the fascinating things about, to me, about the Blues winning was they broke the string of teams that had like these number one overall picks that kind of tanked yeah. to get to, to the top. And it seemed like for a while there, there was only one path to a Stanley Cup, and that was to get Sidney Crosby or, you know, even like a, a, you know, Drew Doughty or somebody at the very top or top two or three pick. Um, and the Blues, the Blues for years were like, we're going to try to do it by fielding a really deep competitive team. Um, and and you, you, I would I would openly wonder, I'm sitting there going, OK, they don't have that superstar um, in the traditional sense of the the Crosby or even, you know, the Blackhawks with with Patrick Kane was number one overall. You know, all these teams had that guy and the Blues didn't. And it's it makes even more sense when you break it down when you look at their best draft, because a you you know there was multiple candidates. You looked at 07 and 08 um, that you know built a lot of those players kind of from the, the a Blues era previously. Um, but you picked 2010, and it was that was the one where you get a guy like Tarasenko through a trade, no less. The David Runblad, who was. The David Run- Runblad trade tree is its own thing for a completely another <laughs> podcast. It's a fascinating exercise, um, but yeah, can you take me through that selection and and just how the Blues managed to build a Stanley Cup winning team, not at the top of the draft, but through picks, you know, ten to twenty. It seems like yeah, I, I think what made that draft specifically, what made that twenty ten class so impressive for. St. Louis was, if you actually go back and forget the players that they got, forget that they got Jaden Schwartz and Vladimir Tarasenko in the middle of the first round, look at who went around those players, because those players were taken 14th overall in Schwartz's case, and then 16th overall in Tarasenko's case, and the three picks, so the pick before Schwartz, the pick after Tarasenko, and the pick wedged in between were Brandon Gormley, Derek Forbert, and Joey Hishin. So you're talking about people who became at best, in Forbert's case, a fringe NHL player, and instead, faced with those options and faced with the players who they, who were available to them in that kind of a range, in the way that other teams were thinking, they went out and got Jaden Schwartz, who was at the time not a, a sort of home run pick. It's easy to look back at these kids and say, how do these other teams pass up on them? But Schwartz was viewed as as kind of small and slow, and Tarasenko was viewed as a complete wild card in a kid who had made clear at the time that he wasn't even sure whether he wanted to play in the NHL. So it was you could not have done a better job than they did with those two picks. It's it, 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 You look back at all of the great drafts that I highlighted here, the Anaheim Ducks with, um, with uh, what I forget what year it was, but with Corey Perry and Ryan Getzlaff and the Philadelphia Flyers landing Claude Giroux in, in the back half of the draft. And it, it just, it's it, all of those stand up certainly against this, this St. Louis draft, but to walk away, given the players that were taken in that range, given what ended up happening with Gormley and Forbert and uh, Hishin and even Austin Watson, who was taking the pick after Hishin, and you go up and down that that 2010 draft, and that first round was a bit of a wasteland, and they walked away with two of the, I don't know, 10 best players in the draft? Yeah. A couple of things. I love, so 
I looking at this like it, it just brings back memories of covering this draft. I love that draft for a lot of reasons. Um, one is it was the Taylor Tyler draft, and if you haven't listened to the Tyler Sagan podcast, this is for the listeners. Go back that that I the interview I did with Tyler because he was so good. He's like I haven't talked about this in years. Just go so good talking about playing against Taylor and Windsor and that how stacked that team was and how crazy that year was in the debate at the top of that draft. Um, you know, it was, I, I want to say this was Steve Eisman's first draft in Tampa and everyone was watching closely who he's going to take kind of misses with Brett Connolly, who was, uh, had some injury issues. Jeff Skinner. I remember he, he was a bit of a reach. If I remember correctly, Carol, people were kind of like Carolina went out on a limb. Um, the Thrashers took Alexander Burmistrov and immediately compared him to Pavel Datsuk. And they thought <laughs> they were getting their own Pavel Datsuk. There was the Jack Campbell sl- sl- pick at 11 um which i don't know if this is a true story or not but somebody switched something at the last second and picked jack um you know there was some debate at the draft table uh, kind of there's some legend there um in this this was also the same draft where cam fowler slips was cons- all year long it was cam fowler was the guy that was going to go after taylor and tyler all year that's all you heard about was cam fowler was a lock to go third slips to 12 and then the classic, I love this draft, the classic um, post-guy slipping debate on why it happened and people just started bad-mouthing Cam and they were wondering if he even liked hockey. It, you just, you know, the, the typical stuff, oh, he didn't interview well, we don't even know if he's into hockey. And it's worked out just fine for Cam. Um, and then on top of all that, you have, what you, as you mentioned, the Blues, basically, this is the draft that helps them win a Stanley Cup, um, gets them their... They're that premier player in Tarasenko without having to use a top three pick. Um, and also, it was of the era where you could get a guy like Tarasenko or Kuznetsov, which Washington mm-hmm. gets at 26, out of Russia without using a top pick because people were still, this was, there was still um, hes- hesitation to draft Russians like that. There's so much yeah. going on here. And then you've got Mark Stone as one of the best late round picks in recent NHL draft history. Where does Mark Stone go? Go up and down the list. I think he was a sixth rounder that year. Sixth round, 178. (laughs) Maybe if you're redrafting this, which I'm sure you, Corey, have done already, it's a top five pick. Yeah. Yeah. Freddie Anderson goes to the Carolina Hurricanes at pick 187. And then never ends up signing and gets redrafted by Anaheim two years later. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sneaky good brendan gallagher at 147 to montreal yeah. this is a really interesting draft yeah. in 2000 you don't hear about the and 2010 it, draft in terms of taylor and tyler that was a moment in draft history that we may never get again we always in the media tried to sort of replicate that oh it's 1a 1v we we tried <laughs> right. to do it with mcdavid and eichel we tried to do it with matthews and line and it has never really been to the point where it was with taylor and tyler's at least not since then where it really was up in the air. There, there was no sort of clear-cut way. I think even when people tried to, to manufacture it with Jack Eichel or tried to manufacture it with Patrick Laine, we always knew that it was going to be Matthews yes. and McDavid. And with Taylor and Tyler, it, it really could have gone any other way. And um, I always get asked in, in every draft, even this year, is Quinton Byfield potentially a risk worth taking over Alexi Lafreniere? Why would I want to draft a left wing? And yeah, um, that that. But but Taylor and Tyler was truly a, a sort of moment in that it, it it was that close. 
Right. And they're and they're gonna forever be linked together and which is something and and they kind of embraced it, like or at least Tyler did when I talked to you. Like he's like it didn't annoy him. Like I can see like if you're Jack Eichel or you you know, you get asked about Connor, you're probably like, Oh yeah. god, another Connor McDavid question. But like in this case, and their names were kind of the same. It was like it had everything. And I I'm still looking at this draft. John Klingberg goes in the fifth round. I th- and I wanna say he was Either at the time or like a recently converted forward to become a defenseman, um, and he, you know, great. Like again, you talk about the picks that can can define a franchise. You know, Dallas, Dallas, you hit with a guy like that in the fifth round that changes everything for you. Um, yeah. Gosh, Grubauer in the fourth round. This is this is a sneaky. I might have to do some sort of look back at 2010. In the in the beauty of this draft is. You know, we're now far enough removed from it where, you know, we've now had these careers have played out, right? Like Kuznetsov, we finally, you know, took forever for him to come over. We finally know, you know, what what, what they have. We've seen these teams that, that have won it. And, you know, it's, you know, this is this is good. Um, all right. I don't have access to your worst. I mean, I guess I could go into these, the system into WordPress and find it. But your worst draft of the last 20 years, which is out, will be out by this time this podcast drops. What what were your takeaways from that? What what jumped out of at the team's worst drafts? And are our fans gonna really want to relive the the worst drafts? Of course they well, I, I almost wonder whether fans are more eager to live relive <laughs> those things. I feel are. like I feel like sports fans are, are sick individuals on most of these things. I almost <laughs> wondered when I was putting this together whether I should release the worst first because there will be more interest in it. Um, I don't know. People people love to relive the mistakes more so than the success stories, I think. And I think what's central to that has always been the NHL draft because when a player gets traded from team A to team B in the NHL, we don't, unless you're extremely well connected, the general audience very rarely knows the pieces that were debated with other teams and what could have been and how that trade could have played out differently if they'd pulled the trigger on making it a week early with Team X instead of Team Y. And with the NHL draft, it's right there. It's it, The history stares you right in the face. You can see who you missed on. You can see all of the big mistakes that were made. You can see when the player that you drafted in the first round is the player directly in front of P.K. Subban and your guy goes on to never play in an NHL game and P.K. Subban goes on to become P.K. Subban. Like those things I think fascinate people in a, in a kind of sick twisted way, especially if your team hasn't been the Pittsburgh Penguins or the Chicago Blackhawks or the LA Kings and you haven't had that, that recent Stanley Cup taste. Um, so it will be interesting. I know it's coming out after or before this drops, but it will be interesting to see what the kind of reaction is. And then in terms of big takeaways and, and maybe things that surprised me, I think, again, New Jersey, I always came back to New Jersey on this. I struggled to pick. <laughs> Just how awful their drafts were. I struggled to pick a draft that was their best, and there must have been seven or eight <laughs> where they just whiffed on 10 picks and there was nothing to show for it. Um, so there, there, But there was a lot of teams like that. Even a team like Tampa Bay, if you go back into the archives, they've drafted so well of late that it's easy to forget that they had – in the early 2000s, at least four or five top 10, top 15 picks that were the worst players selected out of that range. Um, so it, it's 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 fun to relive kind of that side of it as well and go back and look at, oh, okay, are our perceptions about the way that these teams have drafted in, in recent memory at least, are they in line with the actual results or are we clouding how well Tampa has done by the fact that they've got Braden Point and Nikita Kucherov during that time? 
Um, so it, it's a fine balance because some of these teams, they might have that big home run mixed in every few years, but then they whiff on having three first round picks or they whiff <laughs> on having, uh, there, there were teams that had drafts where they had 17 selections back when it was a nine round draft and they walked away with some guy who played 11 NHL games. Like it's, it's, it's a fascinating exercise to look back at some of the big mistakes. And I think that was almost from, from my perspective, a little bit more fun of, a, of an exercise than looking at some of the big success stories. All right. So I am cheating. I pulled it up in WordPress and I am curious. I, the, the first one I, I jumped to was the Boston Bruins because I was wondering, I, you know, was wondering if you would say, okay, the year they had, they could have gone Barzell and Connor and just had an all timer of a draft. If that would have, even though they still hit in that draft, if that would have qualified them for worst, take me through the thought process because you did not pick 2015 as their worst draft. I did not pick 2015 as the worst draft in part because I think Brandon Carlo in the second round gets lost as a, as a as a, yeah as a bit of a success story for sure, and I think Jake DeBrusque has become a much better player than I and many other people who'd scouted that draft closely believe that he would become. Um, certainly, 2015. I mean, you can't you can't mistake that. Saxonition was one of the biggest mistakes in, at the draft in recent memory and those kinds of things. But if you go back through the, the Bruins draft archive, despite all of the years where they found sort of mid-round steals like Brad Marchand and Milan Lucic and, and Patrice Bergeron, you also get years like 2007 where they took, I believe it was Zach Hamill, um, like eighth or ninth overall in, in 2007. And I believe he was taken one pick ahead of Logan Couture. And there were a number of big swings like that um that that the Bruins took over the years that just didn't pan out and there were a number of drafts as well where they didn't have any of those late round steals and where um were it not for for finding a Brad Marchand in a different draft that their trajectory could have played out differently so the Bruins were definitely an interesting case study for sure so I didn't realize this this was another one that was interesting to me in reading this this was before I was covering the league the Chicago Blackhawks. And so anybody who's arguing, hey, we have a million picks in this draft, we're bound to hit, um, This should read this piece. Because in 2000, the Chicago Blackhawks had 15 picks, including six in the first four rounds, and didn't hit on a single one of them. Not a single and, full-time NHL player out of 15 and they picks. they back-to-back picks in the first round at 10th and 11th overall. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Who'd they think? I got to go look. This was 2000. How do you like that's you just feel like if you just had someone pulling names out of a hat, you would probably do better. And I'm not trying to make like whoever the if you're the if you were running that draft and you're listening to this, I this is not I couldn't have done any better. But my goodness, maybe maybe I could. They took Mikhail Yakubov and Pavel Vorobiev, who played 53 and 57 NHL games, respectively. Oh my gosh. Um, what a weird draft. I'm looking at who they passed on. It's not like there was it got any better. No, it, that, that middle of that draft was pretty ugly. Yeah. It was a weird, <laughs> that was another weird draft. Rick DiPietro first overall as a goalie and Danny Heatley, Marion Gabrick at 2-3. It was... Ugh, 2000. What a weird... It's it's funny how these drafts have almost like it's personality or like things in... You know what I mean? Like it's... Mm-hmm. it's Like I feel like that like with classes in school. Like I can tell you the personality of my class of high school kids in the one below us like they take on draft classes almost are like that like, what a weird yeah and some of them take on this mythical quality i mean 2003 and and 2015 certainly come to mind but um 
2012 has its own mythical quality for going the other direction. And and sometimes I think that that actually gets away from those drafts. 2012, when you look back, sure, it had Neil Yakubov and Ryan Murray and Alex Galchenyuk off the top. And it's sort of taken on this life of its own as this the worst draft of the 2010s and, and that kind of a thing. But um, I mean, you look back at that draft now and, and there were some darn good players, especially on defense that came out of that 2012 draft in terms of Morgan Riley and Matt Dumba. And I mean, you go down the list, there were seven or eight defensemen taken near the top of that draft that went on to be sort of star level players in the NHL. And that gets lost in the discussion of Nail Yakubov. Um, I would argue against your, your uh, 2009 assessment of the St. Louis Blues worst draft because they took David Runblad who netted him Tarasenko. So I think they were just planning ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to argue against that. If I mapped out the webs for every player who's been taken, it would have <laughs> been uh, an I would love to different... know what... Runblad must have just blown people. Like, there must have been something about him because, you know, these teams time and time again just completely missed on him. Yeah, and there's there's certain other players that seem to have that quality throughout their their careers too. I mean, how many teams did Clark MacArthur and Mike Camilleri and, and some of these guys who were good players, but were probably never as good as they are, they were perceived by the market. Um, yeah. I don't know. Runblad's Runblad's definitely a weird one because he had an outstanding, when I was reviewing him in terms of the best and worst and going back over his career, he had an outstanding year the year after his draft year in Sweden, where he was a point per game player in the SHL as a 19 year old. And outside of, Elias Pettersson and William Nylander, and briefly Anze Kopitar back in the day. We haven't seen players come out of Sweden and have that kind of impact in their draft plus one year in the SHL. So maybe teams were always kind of hanging on with Runblad to the the kind of what could have been after he'd had such a great year. It almost reminded me of Eli Tolvanen, uh, the Nashville Predators' current prospect, who was a star at the Olympics for Russia when NHLers weren't there and had this unbelievable teenage season in the KHL where he was an impact scorer as a teenager in the KHL, which virtually never happens for teenagers in that league these days. And now he's struggling to climb out of Milwaukee in the AHL and find his way to the Predators lineup. And he's, I believe he's 21 or 22 now and the clock's starting to tick. And if you told me, three or four years ago that Eli Tolvanen wasn't going to work out, I wouldn't have believed you. So right. it, it's it's funny how some of those guys go and how, how they, they have these sort of flash-in-the-pan seasons that really get you excited, and then they never quite get it. And sometimes it's just circumstance and the wrong coach who doesn't really understand it the way you play and that kind of a thing. But other times it's just that you weren't as good as the sum of your parts in that season, and um, Runblad seems like he was one of those guys. The guy that... It is my version of that, and this is why I will never be a scout, and why I always, I'm always even like hesitant to criticize scouts because it's it's impossible. Is Tim Erickson? Like I saw Tim Erickson yeah. as a young player, and I'm like, hey, this is the next Nick Lidstrom. Like I was, he was so poised and looked great. He's, and if you don't remember him, he was a Flames draft pick in 2009. I'm looking at this page now because this is this is my like version of that. Like this is a guy that I was just convinced was going to be this really really good high end defenseman. Um, and just never, whatever reason, like, and I don't know why, um, just bounced around. And I think he's playing in Sweden now. Yeah. It's like there's Angelo things. Esposito was invited to Team Canada's World Junior Camp when he was 16 years old, which has never happened, never had never happened previously, and has never happened since. And not even for Connor McDavid, 
This kid was at four World Juniors camps, hmm. uh, and he never played a game in the NHL. He was a first-round pick. He was a superstar in the QMJHL as a rookie, and he was the next Sidney Crosby, the next great thing, and then just never played an NHL game. So it, hmm. it's, it's crazy how things can, can kind of pivot on you. Uh, I, he was in the was he in the Marion Hosa trade? I, that, I, I believe he was. He was he was traded. It's crazy. All right, I um I'm gonna go into Twitter here and I did open it up to questions. Um, and one of the um this is the one I thought was most interesting that I'm gonna throw out at you to wrap things up here. This comes from Felix Sicard who says who asks. How would Scott rank the top of this year's draft in terms of NHL readiness? And this is an interesting question because in our weird Corona 2020, um, you know, NHL readiness, we don't know if that's going to matter or not because we don't know where the, you know, some of these kids are even going to be playing next year. But it, where it becomes interesting to me is, you know, who, who's going to be impacted the most by this? Like people who won't be playing in the NHL who probably could be playing. Like, how deep does that go in this year's draft? I think this year's draft, in terms of the kids who were potentially good enough and, and sort of ready enough to play next year, it's probably three or four of that sort of top eight or nine group that people normally talk about. Uh, certainly Alexi's at the top of that list, but Quinton, who has established himself, if not as the second overall pick, then as the clear third overall pick, is probably not one of those kids. And I think that's another layer Uh, in terms of evaluating this draft and the kind of impact that these kids are going to have that I think is really interesting because while Quinton may be talented enough to play in the NHL next year, I don't think he's ready for that kind of workload and and to sort of play the pro game. And he's got some refinement that needs to happen in his game. And I know a lot of other scouts feel the same way about Quinton. So it's probably not Quinton number two after Alexi on that kind of a list. And that would probably bring me naturally to, I think, Marco Rossi as the second most sort of NHL ready player. I just, there's absolutely no reason that, that Marco Rossi shouldn't be playing pro hockey next year and, and be dominating at the pro hockey level. I know that he's considering going to Switzerland and Sweden and he's got some options open to him, but um, he's so big and strong and his defensive game is already there to such a high level that he, he just looks like a kid who could play next year and he's not going to be phased by bigger opponents and the speed of play and the decision-making and all of that. He's just so strong and sort of has that low center of gravity to his game that I think Marco would probably be my natural selection. I really do think he could play in the NHL next year for whichever team drafts him. But after Alexi and Marco, it's probably not a very long list. I think Stutzla has an opportunity just because of his skating and his pro experience to potentially do that. But I almost feel like he would be better off playing in the AHL or playing another year um, in the DEL with Mannheim before he makes that jump. And then if I had to pick a wild card outside of those three, I think Cole Perfetti. There's this perception with Cole that because he's small and he's a little slow for his size, that he's not NHL ready or that he might need another year. But uh, the way I see it, he has absolutely nothing left to gain from playing in the OHL. Um, I think he would truly have the chance to have a historic season in the OHL if he were to go back, the kind of season that screams, I shouldn't be here. Um, and, And I think one of the things that's been interesting to me about Cole and that his coach actually highlighted to me when I did his piece on him recently was that a lot of that speed disappears in the offensive zone nowadays. A lot of the speed that's typical off the rush in the track meet that the NHL is in transition 
begins to fade once you're in the offensive zone and then it becomes about how do you make small area plays how do you navigate traffic how do you pass the puck how do you weave and adjust your feet to to sort of escape traffic and and get to the slot from the wall and Cole is among the best players in this draft and among the best players in any recent draft at doing virtually all of those things. So um, I, I think Cole could could surprise some people. If there's a formal training camp next year and if he gets into two or three exhibition games before the NHL gets going in, say, December or January, um, I, I think he's got a real chance to really impress in those games and, and make it very hard on his NHL club to go back. So those are probably the four players that I think are most NHL ready. I don't think that you're going to see Lucas Raymond or Alexander Holtz or Jamie Drysdale in the NHL next year. I think they still have a lot to learn both in the SHL for the two Swedes and then in the OHL for Jamie. Um, but uh, I think those other four players have a real opportunity and, and could make things really interesting. Hmm. Um, you lost me when you said he was uh, slow for being small. I'm out. I'm already out on him. No, I'm just teasing. Next question comes from Jason Schuer, who asks, best option for Detroit at four? Cosentino I don't, says it's close to a lock to be Perfetti. I don't know. Is Cosentino another draft person? Must be. Yes. Um, Sportsnet. Sportsnet. Oh, okay. I, I'm, of course. Um, first time I've heard anything about that. So who do you like for Detroit at four, I guess, from Jason? Yeah, it's tough. If it goes one, two, three, like everybody expects it would, and, and two, three is some kind of combination of Byfield and Stutzla, I think if you're, I don't know, if you're Detroit, you're looking at the home run swing. I think that's the way that they have to go. I don't think they can afford to play it safe. I don't think going after Jamie Drysdale the year after you took Antti Chuomisto and Moritz Sider, and I think Chuomisto has a chance to be a really, really good NHL player. I don't think taking Drysdale there is is the is probably the right play for the organization. And as good as Philip Zadina and Anthony Mantha and Dylan Larkin are, those aren't the kinds of players who are going to be number one players on a contending team, even as good as, as Larkin has proven to be. And the, and the fact that he's quite frankly, probably proven a lot of people wrong to, to become the kind of center that he has been uh, over the last couple of years. But uh, I, I think you have to take a home run swing there. And if you're taking a home run swing there, it's probably Cole Perfetti or Lucas Raymond for me. I just think they have the highest potential ceiling, which isn't to say that I don't think Marco Rossi or Alexander Holtz could become a better player, because I think there's a chance for all four of those kids to rank one, two, three, four, ten years from now in any kind of order. Um, but Perfetti's ability to finish and to make everyone around him better and to sort of make those small area plays that I talked about, and also to be just thinking the game two or three steps ahead of everyone else in this draft, including Lafreniere, is really exciting for me. And then Lucas, his ability with the puck and his ability to hang onto the puck and to be that sort of primary carrier on a line, uh, it will be really hard to pass up, I think, for a team like the Red Wings. So I think those two guys would probably be the direction that I would lean it for. Don't you think, based on what they did last year at the draft, and I know what you you said, you know, because they took two defensemen that look like they're isn't that an indication that maybe it's Jamie, Jamie Drysdale and we're out thinking it like that's that maybe that Steve Eiserman and I'm I'm not asking this with any inside information. This is just me trying to read tea leaves completely because I don't think Steve Eiserman gives out a lot of inside information. Yeah. Don't, don't you sit there and go, maybe they just take Jamie Drysdale because this guy clearly values high end defensemen and that's how he's trying to build this thing versus, you know. Yeah, no, no, it's it's a worthwhile 
it's a worthwhile sort of consideration. I think they, it's definitely something that they will probably consider long and hard too. I just think that the problem created with taking Jamie a year after taking Moritz and Ante and also having Jared McIsaac and a couple of other nice pieces on, on defense coming is that eventually you've got to be able to score goals. And if Zadina doesn't become the player that they thought that they were getting at the time, or uh, if Anthony Mantha and, and sort of, Dylan Larkin find that same gear that they're at, but maybe never quite get to that next echelon, then suddenly you're, it's looking pretty thin. I don't think Joe Valino is going to solve those problems, and he's probably their top forward prospect at this point after Zadina. And um, there, there just isn't a lot else there. Some of the players that they've taken, like a Robert Master Simone, are, are the kind of players that they were taking specifically to, as kind of role depth players someday. So they, they are missing that kind of go-to offensive talent who can run a power play and really sort of crack a game open in a split second with a big play. And um, I just think there's there's such an opportunity in this draft in particular to get that player, especially with next year's draft, which is the, one of the D-heaviest drafts we've seen in years. And certainly the D-heaviest draft I've covered, I've been doing this for seven years, and the 2021 draft, you could have six defensemen taken in the top eight or nine picks. Um, so it, maybe there's an opportunity again there next year if, if Detroit doesn't take steps and if there's still a kind of basement team to add another defenseman a year from now. And I, I, I just think the way to go in this draft, particularly at four, if you're the Red Wings, is to just take your first-line player and, and be happy with it. All right. Uh, we're, we're tight on time, so we'll, we'll have to lightning round these last couple. I like this question from Mark Lazarus. What are Team E's biggest needs heading into the draft? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Team E's biggest needs are. I can tell you that Team E is technically the Winnipeg Jets, and the Winnipeg Jets have Dylan Sandberg and Billy Hainola as two strong D prospects, but their pool of forward prospects it's, is not what it once was after having graduated Kyle Connor and company. So Team E, being the Winnipeg Jets, needs a high-end forward prospect. Another question, when will the NHL adopt a new credible lottery system? We've, we've covered that, I think, pretty well early on. Um... Oh, somebody wants you to break down strengths and weaknesses of like every player. If if you ask that question, um, just read Scott's everything Scott writes. A couple questions about Askarov, the the Russian goalie. So let's let's finish here because we I feel like we anytime we get on this podcast and discuss this draft, he, his name comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is through the lens of the Chicago Blackhawks. Someone is saying. Let's say the Blackhawks finish with the 10th overall pick. Of course, we know they're going to lose the play-in and then win the lottery, so we already know how that's going to play out. But let's let's say they get the 10th overall pick. Who's the best fit there, uh, and is it Askarov? And I, I think I'm Askarov, paraphrasing Wally Maz's question here. Yeah, I think Askarov has to be in that conversation if you're Chicago. I think there are only a handful of teams in, that, that are potentially in that sort of 8 to 15 range where Askarov is most likely to go, who are most likely to pick him. And I think Chicago makes a lot of sense in that range. Um, I certainly think New Jersey with their second pick, not their seventh overall pick, but their next pick is a team that could, even after the emergence of Mackenzie Blackwood this season, still potentially want to go that direction and take the swing on Askarov. I, I thought LA, if they had have lost the lottery, um, and if they were drafting a few slots lower, would have given him would have given Askarov e- even in the top ten a, a long hard look. Um, even after Cal Peterson played quite well for them down the stretch, so it, it, I don't know. I, I think Chicago of those teams that's that's in Askarov's kind of range there 
makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think he would be a natural fit there, especially if those eight players that I talked about are all off the board and the next best players are players like Jack Quinn and, and Seth Jarvis and forwards like Dylan Holloway and Dawson Mercer who project more as sort of checking players. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. Askarov's the home runs. Askarov's going to be the home run swing for me once those eight, seven forwards plus Jamie Drysdale are off the board. Um, so it, he's, he's definitely in that mix. And I think he might be the right pick in that kind of a range for the Blackhawks. Awesome. Well, Scott, thanks for doing this. I love, I love these episodes. I love talking prospects and I, I just like that. I can throw anything at you and you're so informative in your answers. So thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's a, it's great to come on with you whenever we do this and hopefully we can keep it going as we approach the draft here. It's going to be a lot of fun the next few months as, as we ramp up to, I don't know, a a November NHL draft. (laughs) Yeah, we could do, we could do 12 more of these and and still not even uh, hit our draft. And so in good, and that's fine. And that's the beauty of the draft. We have plenty of time to, whoever, you know, whoever's picking four, I'm sure that's, we're going to cycle through that question and variation of that question a thousand times. So it's great. So Scott, thanks for doing this. And just to wrap up here, I do want to, for listeners, I want to plug a couple of podcasts this week because we have the beauty of, of the league being on pause is that we, we are able to get some great guests. And um, Mike Russo and his fantastic podcast, Straight From The Source, has lined up Scott Hausen, who uh, you may remember as the Columbus Blue Jackets GM, but who is now the new president of the AHL, taking over the league. Scott, as you can imagine, tough time to be taking over the AHL because we don't know what's going to happen with them. Um, but I would encourage you to check out that that interview. And Eric Duhatchek, great legendary writer uh, at The Athletic, is joining Scott Burnside uh, on two-man advantage. I think Pierre Lebrun is taking some time away on his yacht somewhere. So congratulations, Pierre, for well-deserved time off. Um, I also want to encourage listeners, check out the comments section. It's a, it's a new, on each podcast, it's a new thing that we've implemented at The Athletic. If you're listening right now on The Athletic app, you can comment on this this podcast. If you if there were questions you wanted to ask me or we wanted to, to, to debate, I'm, I'm jumping in there and answering those questions. Just another great way to interact with you guys on The Athletic app. And of course, don't forget to uh, rate and subscribe to the Full 60 on Apple um, and if you're not an Athletic subscriber and you want 40% off, I'm plugging a lot of things right now. If you want 40% off a subscription, go to theathletic.com slash the full 60. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again, Scott, for joining the podcast and have a great week. 